0: to gain valuable insight into different career paths and life in general. Let's get to it. In this episode, Douglas Rogers shares his long and winding path after graduating from Cornell in 1996. We learn about his stint as a broker-dealer, his time as an associate portfolio manager for ultra-high net worth individuals, as well as what happened when he founded his own advisory firm only a few years out of school. Listen to hear where there were pitfalls, the lessons he learned, and why after several stints at senior positions at Boutique IBs, he's decided to become CEO again with the launch of Semi-Cap Equity Partners. Enjoy. Douglas, thanks so much for joining the Wall Street Oasis podcast.
1: Thank you, Patrick. It's great to be here.
0: So it'd be awesome if you could give the listeners a short summary of your bio.
1: Absolutely. I'll try. I've certainly taken a um, a differentiated path. So, um, uh, you know, I started out my career after a a short break from college back in 96. I started out my career with Morgan Stanley Dean Witter in retail brokerage. Um, I had really exceptional brokerage training. It was one of the best on the street at that time. Um, but I really wasn't fit for just a phone calls, so, which is really what the job was at that time. So I very rapidly um, transitioned into a fee-based asset management with a small boutique asset manager uh, based across the Bay of San Francisco and um, really enjoyed the work. That really taught me, I think, um, really an exceptional grounding or exceptional uh, skill sets in uh, portfolio construction and, um, and uh, research and securities analysis. We had a great client base, mostly um, high net worth individuals, some pension and, and uh, plans, etc. And um, but that really also taught me the um, the value of working closely and collaboratively uh, collaboratively with clients to achieve you know certain financial objectives. And um, but uh, there were some twists and turns with that company as well. When I first got there, uh, my manager was uh, you know certainly getting up there in years and uh, had some health issues, which were uh, uh, which were, I was going to find out, which were um, uh, impacting the business as everybody else in the office moved within a week of me starting and left me alone uh, with, a, with a very old but fairly successful asset manager. <laughs> and at the time, I didn't understand what the implications of that was, but I certainly do now. And um, uh, so fast forward, I actually um, ended up running a vast majority of the portfolio, everything from research and trading to um, having meetings with the um, uh, uh, the Schwab accounts that, uh, uh, that we were uh, that we were involved with, and meeting with Abby Joseph Cohen, the uh, a senior economist at Goldman Sachs at the time and our prime broker and all sorts of, all, all sorts of things. But I was also stuffing envelopes and doing billings and, and running around and answering phones. <laughs> so it was really all encompassing, it was all, all encompassing business.
0: And so, so you, you'd you be called like an associate portfolio manager then, or that was like the title back then. And basically you're doing everything.
1: Though. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. 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 Yeah. And that really taught me, I think, you know, a, a very broad spectrum of skills, which was wonderful. Um, but um, uh, but the health issues of the manager really were starting to impact the business, and um, um, at the time, this was in ninety. Were people taking their
0: Were people taking their money out because it was known that there were health issues, or, or was it the performance of the the? Uh,
1: it, it was that um, he he couldn't remain focused, and he was starting to act very unprofessionally in the role, and that was impacting the clients. Um, more so than the actual performance it was really the day-to-day workflow that was getting significantly impacted in the road and it was just um the environment wasn't very healthy anymore and um, he was absentee most of the time and would mm-hmm. show up and I think a lot of people have had this type of management experience manager experience where you know he shows up from time to time in a huff and um, is, is really short of breath, and, and short of mind space, and um, very terse around everybody else, and then just storms out. And so nothing constructive actually gets done. Right. So you know it, it's really just, um, they, they come in, they build a fire, and they leave, and um, you're, you're left with the fire in the middle of the office, and oh, um, you wonder why you're doing it. But at the time-
0: This is the late um, 90s, right?
1: Yeah, this was late 90s, and it was just at the time where fee-based asset management and RAP fees right? 1%, 2% of assets under management where that was exploding. So I had the brilliant idea where I thought it was brilliant at the time. I had the brilliant idea that I could do this as an actual firm. I mean, I had, I had set up all of our technology. I was running all the technology and the trading and the, the research and I had maintaining all the prime brokerage relationships. So I thought, well, hell, I could actually make a business out of this and do this for others. Mm-hmm. All the breakaway brokers that were coming off the street at that time and going into fee-based, I thought, this would be a brilliant business model. And, um, and so I actually lit out on my own impetuously, far too young, with no capital, and uh, <laughs> started my own thing. And I founded a company called Managed Source Financial Group, or at the time, Managed Source Research. Okay. And um, the, the original intent of Managed Source Research was to provide this kind of turnkey operational um, you know business for Uh, breakaway brokers that were leaving the street and setting themselves up and i could you know obviously implement um the entire operating and um and and um uh and execution platform and strategy
0: how is it structured the business model i'm curious did you charge them like a consulting fee was it like a retainer how did you i'm sure you went through many iterations that the business model and how you were doing that and the pricing and all that but i'm just curious never
1: Never even got there, my friend. Never okay. even got there. <laughs> if you recall, one of my last sentiments was that I left with impetuously and too young with no capital. Yeah. So it was really demand pull. So actually, I uh, I printed up some uh, some business cards for myself, and I ran down to a there was a money show. I think a week later, which was it might still be around, but you know, one of those retail oriented um, uh, financial. Um, uh, conferences. And, and I ran down to a money show to drum up some initial interest. And I actually, I had matriculated into the CFA program mm-hmm. at the time. And I had, I had become a very strong writer uh, because my educational background had very strong English departments. And um, mm-hmm. so I was a good writer and a good, um, a good head for business. And the original demand pull was for equity research product. So actually, we never provided that turnkey solution, which we started out to provide, and um, we actually started writing research. So um, back in, uh, this is in 19, late 98 going into 1999, um, the company was established and became a, um, an, an independent equity research and business valuation firm. And just give and give the, the
0: listeners just to give the listeners a little more perspective. Um, you graduated from Cornell with a BA in yeah. history, so nothing about yeah. finance, <laughs> nothing. So, but you you know a great probably an incredible writer, like you said, because of that that education. So, what prompted you to can you even go to Morgan Stanley to start out, and what prompted you like was finance on the on the radar ever? Or like, how did you even? Well, end up? you
1: know. I- I, I Yeah, my 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 official major was in um uh, in history, but I was his, I was studying history and economics, and I was okay. always very strong in math and economics. It was it was really easy for me, and I was always you know, kind of enamored with the stock market, which coming out of you know the eighties, everybody was. <laughs> right? I was yeah. <laughs> you know born <laughs> in the seventies, a product of the eighties. I mean, everybody wanted to be barbarians at the gate. Right. Um. So uh, you know, so I was always fascinated with that, and and quite frankly, I actually was looking at initially. I was looking to try to get into management consulting or, or, or something along those lines, um, where I guess I perceived a lot of prestige and similar backgrounds to mine. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, a, a, a friend of mine, you know, said he was working at um, working in brokerage and he'd been, you know, he'd been very successful. He was much a couple of years older than me, maybe a decade older than me. Yeah. And he said he could get me an interview. So that's really how it happened got it um and obviously you know once you go through that sort of that sort of training and you get all of your securities licenses um then obviously it made sense to really just to to, to stay to, to try to stay close to that uh, um you know that line of business and so my career just progressed from there so you had um, you know how really to,
0: about, you basically had a year um, yeah you basically had a year there where you're picking up the phone dialing for dollars yeah. and yeah. then you jump to this, this kind of odd situation where you're with a older (laughs) PM or whatever, you're running the entire business with, you know, everyone leaves right when you arrive and then you kind of jump out on your own. And so it, it, it quickly pivots to an equity research shop. Am I following so far?
1: Yes, that is correct.
0: Okay. So you're, you're doing that. And then tell me how that evolves. So it starts with $0 a revenue in ninety eight ninety nine how yeah. who's your first customer? what how does it grow? Um, is it rocky? is it you know you're off to the off to the races? How does it work?
1: Uh, no, it was definitely rocky. Uh, you know obviously securities work or anything in this industry is always rocky, mm-hmm. um, which is why it generally is a business of scale for sure uh, mm-hmm. to layer in the different revenue streams but um, uh, but it was somewhat rocky. you know at the time there was uh, strong demand for corporate-sponsored research, which is, you know, the, the um, uh, small public companies that really were orphaned from the street or just were seeking to get their message out or, or get more uh, focus on them uh, would pay directly to research firms for equity research products. This was very common at the time. There were multiple sound, To providers. me, that
0: seems like a very big conflict of interest, but okay, continue.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that, well, of course, we're you know yeah. we haven't gotten to the research the research settlement issues, which was kind of a, which kind of strange. But yes, there were you know there were a lot of conflicts in the industry. But at the time, right, that was um you know that was a check, yeah. and it got us it got us started out. Um, you, you mind know, sharing like what
0: a check would look like? Is it like a twenty thousand dollar check for like a, a report, a ten thousand dollar check, five thousand?
1: Yeah, there were usually about um, It was usually some sort of uh, of some sort of annual fee, so you can so you you do your work consistently, and they would range from anywhere from you know fifteen to thirty thousand dollars a year. Okay, got it. Um, and um, and, uh, and and also and then alongside, we started to launch the fully kind of independent equity research product as well. So we were writing on both, and we would clearly delineate which was which, and we were you know we were pr- producing both. Um, reports of our own construction and our own ideation, and, you know, working for, working for clients. And, and it was that client side that actually got me back into, I think, a mindset that was similar to that kind of fee-based asset management, where I started working with the executives very, very closely, and they started to bring me into to more expansive roles. Um, for example, some of them would have me start um, drafting some of their security filings for them. Mm-hmm. They realized that I had that kind of, you know, that that skill for writing in that particular style. I mean, when you read a, a securities filing, it's, it's kind of a, you know, if, when, might, should, would, could, will be the greatest thing, but maybe not. Yeah. Sort of style. And it's very particular. And I just it just kind of rolled out of me. So I was um, I started um, I started getting closer to my corporate clients. I started writing and drafting some of their securities filings, 10Qs, 10Ks, S1s, things like that, mm-hmm. and found that I really had a knack for it, and that that continued to progress through the years into business valuations, fairness opinions. These are all you know fee-based, you know fee-based projects and yep. um, uh, fee-based kind of you know research-centric products, and ultimately it progressed later on. The final the final iteration of what we did at Managed Source was. Uh, was full CFO for Higher Services, and mm-hmm. we were brought on typically by private companies that were in the uh, you know pursuing a public listing of some sort, um, whether it be through merger or through direct registration, mm-hmm. and um, you know we would come on in a um, uh, um, uh, so as an as a CFO for higher capacity, and I would handle everything from some of their uh, some of their uh, accounting cleanup. Um, uh, requirements all the way through PCAOB audit. And then obviously constructing and writing the S1 filing incorporating and you, the financials, et cetera.
0: So, when you say I did, was it you and a team or is it mostly you doing the heavy lifting with like a support team around you?
1: It right. was um, at that point, it was mostly me. We did grow to a point of about 10 or 12 employees in the middle section. So I kind of fast forwarded from, you know, late nineties yep. into, into the uh the the, the early No, that's years. fine so you're doing more ten. interim
0: cfo services in that i mean that lasted yeah. this for what, 14 years almost this
1: yes there there was a there was a big push so there was a big section in there from 2000 i'm gonna say 2002 to to, to about 2007 mm-hmm. where um the global research settlement um coming out of the dot-com era bust or the dot-com bust um, really opened up the opportunity for independent equity research providers, and mm-hmm. that's where I saw the significant opportunity in the equity research product to take it fully independent from the standpoint of, you know, obviously, um, you know, no upfront compensation of of any kind. Mm-hmm. Um, and we started to integrate our product with, uh, you know, Reuters and Moltex and all of the independent providers. Um, you know, we considered ourselves up there with like a Soleil product at the time, and um, and I anticipated. Um, XBRL coming down the pipe and automation and automatic data delivery. So I developed a team in India um, to do a lot of our data mining and construction of our portfolio models, which we would use as the, um, the base layer for our, our financials. Then yeah. I had a, you know, a CFA as a, a director of research come in and finalized uh, uh, the research. And we were able to very efficiently get a significant amount of research product out into the market. Um, hundreds of reports under coverage. Vast majority in technology and healthcare. Right? What were the what, were the
0: what were the unit economics and something like that who are running this type of business?
1: Uh, this is why we transitioned into the CFO services. The yeah. economics were horrible. There yeah. were no economics. It ended up happening. <laughs> <laughs> and we serious, very seriously. It's we fair. invested very heavily. I raised some capital. What did you and, think? Um, what did you
0: think was going to happen? Like you were going to get uh, these were going to be private reports that that all these um, hedge funds would come pay you for to have access for or something?
1: Yeah, we had two. We had two models. First of all, was the, there was uh, the the kind of direct subscription model, which there are still a few firms like a New Constructs, for example, a, a firm that I met back then who really stayed committed to it and built a good practice. Right. Um, shameless, you know, shameless pitch. He's actually doing excellent work. Um, New Constructs has um, has, uh, some similar concepts about how to to draw in automated data um, Mm -hmm. to simplify and and, um, streamline the the production. But um, no, so so we were looking at our own direct output of selling subscriptions to the research and selling the research directly through our website and then selling it through our independent um, equity research partners, which included again, Reuters, Moltex, I I think it's one of the large I don't want to misspeak. I think it was a city group. I can't recall. There were a couple, we had a couple of large providers that we were starting to, to output our, our research to. Yep. We then also started to contract with small broker dealers that didn't have research products. So we could outsource and black label the research for them or sell our research for soft dollar participation through their channels into the institutional realm.
0: Got it.
1: Um so all of these things were, were, were areas of opportunity for, revenue, for gen- revenue generation, and we were kind of putting them all into play.
0: Got it. And so then what, was the, what would you say is the peak, and then why did you, uh, in 2012, after a 14-year run, what kind of made you kind of have that transition to go to the investment banking side at another firm?
1: Well, because, um, you know, let, let's put it this way. We had, uh, you know, maybe... You said you had
0: 12 at the peak or whatever, 12 employees. Yeah, I so mean, a couple of million of revenue or something.
1: That, that's really why we had a couple of... Let's just, let's just give one, one example. The, the Reuters Moltex. So Reuters um, uh, started to generate its own research product and then highlight its own research above all of the... Uh. In. <laughs> Ouch. And... And, and, uh, and, and of course, the institution started to realize the research and their, their, uh, their analytics were proprietary. So everybody started to regenerate and, and redevelop their own proprietary research. And um, I remember getting one check from Reuters after we'd already had, you know, I, I'd spent thousands on press releases about research coverage and, you know, more thousands on people and, and production. And um, uh, we had hundreds of reports on, uh, on Reuters. And and I remember getting a check for like for like thirty (laughs) five dollars. And that was it. And and when I saw that check, I said, you know, this this industry is transitioning back to where it was. And at that same moment, I was starting to get um, uh, requests just from my network for hey, could you be our CFO and the economics there were very strong. And um, and so, you know, it it, it was it was very clear to see that this um, that this Product set was going to have to either move in one or other of a dur- dur- uh, different direction. Was it tough and when
0: you kind of made that realization? Was it like a tough transition for you? I can imagine, like, you've put so much blood, sweat, and tears in this thing for over a decade. And then to be like, sure. okay, now time to move on, or were you just nonchalant about it?
1: I'll tell you that one was very easy. That was probably the easiest transition that I made in my career because I wasn't swimming upstream. I built notoriety for myself. There mm-hmm. was enough material out there that there was a decent brand at the time, mm-hmm. and people were starting to in-call and and request that sort of le- you know that sort of um, uh, uh, that sort of committed uh, role as a as a CFO for hire or or something like that. So that was actually very easy because the economics were there. The demand was there. And, but you um,
0: just scaled down the team. So it just really became you.
1: Yeah. Basically, exactly. is, that,
0: is that the idea? So instead of all these reports you're putting out and building up your name, it was more now, but you just kind of becoming a hired gun um, Correct. to go and do this. And that's, was that what Merriman Capital was? Is that how I should think of that? or what, Was that the next so, stage or was that still at managed
1: source? The transition between those two was after the, the Great Recession. Okay, right. So what really happened, it was really funny, Patrick. I, um, uh, the CFO services business was going exceptionally well. Mm-hmm. I did start to see some of those same factors that had plagued research coming into the market, meaning there were a couple of um, you know, very well-capitalized kind of larger CFO for hire types of businesses Um, coming into play, but we were so differentiated and focused on the securities work. And, um, you know, whereas, you know, the well-marketed CFO for Hire was really a bookkeeping function. getting paid a hundred bucks an hour and we were charging, you know, 10,000 a month minimum. Mm -hmm. Um, So uh, it was very differentiated product, but I was, I was seeing some of that evolve. And so really what I wanted to do to progress with the business, and yes, I did pull it back to just me to incubate this, and develop it, and it got to the point where I hit my my limiter of about four or five separate clients at a single time, mm-hmm. making some good re- making really good solid revenue. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, and so, uh, from that point, I wanted to push the business back to really core securities functionality. I saw the tremendous value in having proprietary funds, for example, that could take advantage of the companies that we were already working for. So. Um, you know, one, one small piece about Managed Sources, I maintained or I, I, I registered us as a registered investment advisor to maintain basic levels of, uh, of FINRA registration and compliance functionality, yep. things like that. And um, so I really wanted to have the business move back to um, institutional securities work. And what that was going to look like was proprietary funds and assets under management to take advantage of the, uh, the registered investment advisory side of the business. And, you know, the, the hope was that we could have some basically mer- merchant banking capability that could serve the, um, uh, that could serve the corporate clients on the CFO services side.
0: So you're saying uh, almost as if, the so as you were getting brought in for these corporate clients, mostly private companies to either prep them for an IPA, you know, for going public or whatnot, right. you also wanted to have as part of your business the ability to, to make investments yourself in these private companies? Is that what you're saying or, or in other kind of other? So
1: almost all of them were obviously looking for capital. They needed extra capital to go public. They needed extra capital for operations. Mm-hmm. And uh, what I saw is the opportunity to have um, have proprietary funds and merchant banking capability under the investment advisory side that could make capital available as basically bridge loans initially for some of these for some of these companies. Got it. Where once the work was completed and once they were sufficiently capitalized it would be hopefully low risk capital. There would be a strong return on that, uh, that investment. And And so did you make, did you guys make, did you make
0: a lot of investments like that through your private network funding, you know, funding it that way or through? Well, that
1: product was going to market in 2007.
0: Okay. So (laughs) (laughs) now
1: that was going to market in 2007. And, and so, but, but even transitioning further, you know, the, the the addition, the the rest of the, um, the, the model was to then push it even further and start to, Get back to you know having trading capabilities, having research capabilities, and trying to bring things together from these kind of pockets of opportunity that I've leaped, i i leaped from you know point to point through uh, through the uh, uh, the the long gestation of you're basically
0: trying to get to scale, um, so we okay. take advantage of a lot of some of the, the the synergies across the different divisions, basically right.
1: And yeah. and really, it was the intent was you're you're correct to get to scale and have a research centric or a data centric. Hmm. institutional financial services firm and start build it from that point, from these relationships with, you know, with these corporate executives that I had that I built up extensively and attorneys and accountants, you'll see all of that is investment banking work. That's, you know, the groundwork for the investment banking role is, is being built through all of this. Mm-hmm. Right? Those 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 um uh those corporate relationships are are what they're everything in investment banking and yep. so I had those in stage. I'd been developing them for years and doing close work with CEOs and CFOs uh, etc so um so that was the idea was to cater more to their to to the to the corporate clients institutional or or, or financial needs and to really push the business in that direction. Um, and of course, I didn't get a chance to have that funded as the world fell apart once again, seven years after it fell yep. apart before.
0: 2008, yep.
1: <laughs> and that was the transition back to Merriman, is that we were down, me and my wife had, um, had been down in LA for a couple of, uh, for a number of years, in Los Angeles for a number of years with the practice. And, and um, uh, she's originally from the Bay Area and technology was buoying. The bay area economy again so we actually um, made the determination that you know it's time to move back to the bay and um and i was really craving that opportunity to still bring all of these core skills back together but in a very you know in 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 a registered you know data center securities based business and um and so we did that and um john merriman is um this gentleman that i've known for many years through actually personal associations Mm -hmm. and i knew him as a fighter and a builder and somebody that, you know, certainly wouldn't go down um, without a fight. And his business had been through some transition and some challenges, um, as, um, as many people know, and they're out in the public domain, and um, he fought through them. And when I sat down with him and, and caught up, it was very clear that he had a significant side of the business that could benefit from my work. And, um, and I was obviously really craving getting back in and having a trade desk available to myself, having, you know, distribution capabilities and capital markets capabilities. So it really was a, a perfect opportunity at that time to start to really bring everything together from, uh, from the past 15 years or so.
0: For sure. So you um, had a chat with him, said, you know, I moving back up to SF, you make the jump. Um, what's it like when you your first day or your first month? was it a surprise? Was it weird not running your own shop anymore or was it, um, was it refreshing?
1: Oh, it was totally weird. It was totally weird, but it was extremely refreshing for a while, you know, because obviously you don't have to do any of those things that you had to do. The EDD reports, right? Yeah. (laughs) Um, Right. And, and uh, you know, all the administrative function was taken off of me. So I could really just focus on work and clients, which I completely adored. And uh, so actually it was, so was what, what was mo-
0: what was the most of the work that you were doing for for Merriman when you and this is two thousand twelve or two thousand fifteen correct that you were there?
1: So yes, at the time, you know, so again, he he'd gone through some some uh, some regulatory and other challenges that really impacted the business and and really shattered big portions of the business. Yeah. So I think um, eight or nine to two thousand eight or nine, or and and um, and so he was really in rebuilding mode. So the really first the the first thing to do was one. And, and this is going to shock a lot of people. Since I ran a registered investment advisory for all those years, I actually lost all of my securities license. So at least on the on the um, uh, on the stock side, so the seven, the sixty-three, sixty-five, thirty-one, all of those, and twenty-four had gone by the wayside. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I endeavored on on two fronts. One was it was all about prospecting. So it was all about prospecting and rebuilding the business and building it into a capital markets business as I envisioned it. Um, with you know john 's full support which was which was excellent at the beginning, and obviously getting all of my all of my licenses back, so I spent an enormous amount of time studying at nights and the weekends, and um, I literally tied myself to a desk and prospected corporate executives of public companies for eight to twelve hours every single day. There were days Patrick, where i was I was back to back on calls for you know i' had eight nine ten calls back to back it was gosh. just insane
0: <laughs> and did you in terms of capital markets, so what specifically types of like, did you end up getting, landing any of these clients? Was it more most of the stuff you're doing more around, around the trade uh, trading desk and
1: managing those clients that were already in-house?
0: Like were you so right, successful it was, at all?
1: It was multivariate. It was actually extremely successful. I was able to successfully recatalyze a significant portion of the business. So um, we brought a lot of these clients and most of them were, um, both domestic and international public companies that had been a little bit orphaned by the street, but had, um, you know, had needs for capital, had needs for stronger trading, had, um, senior executives with concentrated positions. Um, and, um, Like mark, uh, market
0: caps of what? Like 20 million to hundred million type, type?
1: Uh, yeah, I'd say, you know, 50 to 200.
0: 50 to 200. Okay.
1: Right. So, so okay. definitely on the smaller scale, definitely more, you know, micro capitalized and small cap companies. Yeah, but that was really where the opportunity for rebuilding was sure he'd lost a lot of his research functionality and um, but there was still strong trading there and you know, I really had what I needed to deliver. And so I focused more on um, the corporate services uh, and initially with these clients and again, you know, opening the, you know, getting their 401k open and helping to get some trades, um, uh, some, some trades together for them that would benefit the, you know, their, um, uh, their 401k accounts or handling of the 10b5 plans um, for some of the, um, uh, for some of the senior executives, mm. um, giving them, giving them strategy advice, hooking them up with conferences, all sorts of different things. So there was both a consultative side of the, of, uh, of the service provision, as well as a very strong security side, right? And, and, and catalyzing the trading and getting back into offerings and, um, and issuances of securities was really the ultimate goal. And so obviously getting involved with them to help them with 10B5 plans, securities plans, and... Um, what's a, what's a 10B5 stock.
0: plan? Sorry, I'm not in the, I wasn't in the securities, it's 10B5. What's that?
1: Sorry, a 10B5 plan is when a, a sen- senior executive, usually an affiliate or an insider, has a large position in stock and wants to start selling some of that usually for standard asset allocation. And the best way to do it is to use what's called a, a 10B5 plan, which is a fully disclosed plan so that, it, you know, so that the, uh, the investment community knows it's coming can see what parameters are set and that it doesn't, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't come out and get misconstrued as, <laughs> right. you know, the CEO selling. Um, so you put a, you put a fully disclosed plan in place and then all the, all of the stock goes where it goes across our desk. So I was able to generate revenue, you know, revenue on the desk and and really, you know, get our clients back involved with, you know, multiple points of value through the firm. And I became and and I proved to be very, very adept at at cross selling all of these different um, features and functionalities because of my work, both as an operator and understanding the the workflow of, of myself also working closely with the executives as a consultant for so many years I kind of knew what they needed and what was on their mind and um and I knew you know that so what changed what,
0: what changed um, after three years you know so like you're there for three years sounds like it's going really well what what prompted kind of the move
1: well I think um
0: you said that initially that your first place it was the easiest transition was this one of the hard transitions
1: no, this was a, you know, this was a fairly easy transition as well, because obviously yeah. I, I had a, a, a bit of a personal friendship and, uh, with the CEO and knew him for many years. Yeah. So, and, and actually he had some great staff there. He really did. At the time, there were just some wonderful people there. So it made it fairly easy. And yeah. of course I put my head down and, and um, you know, and busted my butt. So people respect you when you do that, when you come in and you, you work your butt off and you show results and they generally respect you. Yeah. And, um, And so I had, I had the support of my colleagues and, um, and wonderful offices and it was a really nice transition. Um, but, um, you know, Merriman Capital is is, is no longer around. Hmm. So there were obviously some continued challenges at the kind of, you know, kind of, I guess systemic or intrinsic to the business, um, that were never fully overcome.
0: Do you know what those Um, were specifically or what, what?
1: Financial. Financial but
0: specifically was there just too much overhead to for the, for the revenue being generated, like through um, obviously, but the,
1: for some reason, Patrick, there was a lack of focus. Okay. And this is really where, you know, you know, just, just kind of basic business parameters start to, you know, start to show themselves that even though it's a broker dealer or an investment bank, it doesn't mean it's a, it's, it's somehow immune to standard business practices. Mm-hmm. So, Um, yeah, there was, um, too much overhead and, um, not enough, not enough focus on high margin or maximizing margins, I should say, around any single source of revenue. Right. And then as the, as the financial challenges mounted because of that diffusion of work and that, you know, and that lack of, of real margin um
0: did you feel like you could have helped with that or do you feel like it was out of your absolutely. hands
1: absolutely like, it was yeah. so obvious but it was out of my hands it was obvious to all, most of us why was,
0: why was it out of your hands because you weren't the boss at now this time around or because...
1: because yes that was really part of it and yeah. um and and there were some peculiarities at the board and the management level with people that weren't really from brokerage but like he know, was your friends. friend did you have
0: any like sit down like Stern talks, like, you know, do you really need to change direction here? Why are we investing here? I know there's a lot of revenue, but this is no margin type of talks. It, uh,
1: you, know, uh, you know, from time to time, but they really didn't seem to have much sticking power or staying power because, uh, um, you know, and, and I don't know how much of this is appropriate <laughs> for disclosure. But, no. you know, but the truth was, it just, um, you know, there was a lack of focus there. And there were a lot of new ideas that they were trying to put into market, but none of them were properly capitalized. Yeah. most of them didn't, didn't fully sync with the standard or the core business. And thus you started spending money on things that weren't furthering the core businesses where you had the bulk of your revenue coming in. And it just, it. and that breaks down. It doesn't matter whether I'm selling HVAC, right. Yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> equipment or, or renting trucks or doing securities. That's yeah. just, that is a bad business model. It breaks down. Well, where and would so, you have
0: focused, where was most of the revenue coming in from when you, got, when you were there, your three years there?
1: So, the, well, that's the thing, is the most, most of the revenue was still coming in through my division and through trading. Got it. And so I had you know, 65, nearly 70 corporate, ex, corporate clients. They were all asking for issuances and offerings. but We didn't rebuild a capital markets group or a real distribution uh, desk, which is where you know the the founder actually originally came from as one of the best capital markets guys ever. Yeah. Um. And uh, so that was really bizarre. And instead <laughs> they were building, you know, platforms for automated distributions that they thought would work and all sorts of things. And and um, uh, So it was really strange that they got so far away from the core business model that everyone knew worked and that they still had some real strength or they could have had strength with. Right. and Went down all these different paths. And and I can only say that you know when. When, fi- when finances falter at any business, you become really beholden to your investors. And you know, if your investors are not from your from your business, and your business is highly regulated um, and highly defined, and your revenues are highly defined by that regulation or uh, by those regulatory boundaries, then you know you can have some conflicts of uh, strategy. And that's really what presented itself is, is I think, you know,
0: at the board level, point, it got kind of ugly and yeah.
1: It was just kind of going all over the place. And, yeah. and, and I think it was really to try to keep certain people happy, but they didn't really matter. And uh, you know, unfortunately it just is a, uh, I think a, a very common, it's a very common scenario in the middle market firms where um, with the, without a core focus and or without real domain expertise in one or a couple of things that are centered around, our specific functionality within the financial community Mm -hmm. very quickly get off track and you really have no cushion to sustain yourself through any shocks
0: right okay so things didn't work (laughs) so long story short uh things didn't work out and so when when did it when was it clear that you know your job was disappearing or was it you were you given a long heads up Did you see the writing on the wall when did you start looking for your next? Well, I, you know,
1: obviously we, we, we started track, you know, we, there was a public company, so it was very easy to track the, you know, to track the financials. And of course the, you know, the, the interoffice politics was very clear that there were some things that, that just things weren't getting done. We weren't getting resources anymore for the core business, but um, I'd really established myself very, very well. And um, I started to run all of the offerings for the clients because again, we really didn't have that functionality being rebuilt. Mm-hmm. So by default, I started doing all of the offerings as well. And then compliance pulled me aside and said, Guess what? You're a banker. Take your test. <laughs> Take your what? Take your test. <laughs> so I said, And I said, Hallelujah, you are right. When, do you, when can you sign me up? Yeah. So um, I was actually ecstatic at that because uh, um, the, the more credentials you have, the bigger, you know, the kind of. Uh, um, uh, uh, moat you have built around you. So
2: mm-hmm. um,
1: I was happy to do that because I was serving that functionality, and I was starting to do debt and equity offerings on behalf of the clients that I was serving, amongst all of the other um, uh, functionality. And um, it was really time to bring it all together in the investment banking uh, role. So I, I uh, uh, you know, I took my Series seventy nine test, uh, changed my title, and, um, and and really and really spearheaded the uh, the investment banking um uh, portion which is is, is really what my, my focus has remained to this day and so it really didn't matter at that point patrick what was going on with the firm or what direction they wanted to take it my career was progressing at that point right i'd established myself i had a trajectory and i was making the best out of it and so i had um and and although i you know i'd started looking at other firms and other shops um, you know, really, th- this was the time to to focus on which firms could really benefit me as a banker um, to move forward. And, um, and so that's, that's why we really progressed from there. And I just kind of left, you know, resigned myself to allowing, you know, the uh, Merriman Capital to kind of go whichever pathway it wanted to go.
0: Okay. And so tell me exactly how, like, how did, what was it like in terms of like the final meeting or the, <laughs> the, that that beating where it was like okay this is it where you resigned or they said that's it was it um...
1: it was um it was peculiar i mean there was more that i'm, I'm really not at liberty to share that that's fine maybe caused some i mean i know when i luck.
0: i got i got fired early on in my private equity career and i can tell you it came as a complete shock to me it sounds like you saw the writing on the wall so it's easier
1: <laughs> well there were some uh, there were some very strange peculiarities at that shop, and they're present in a lot of middle market shops, and mm-hmm. things that just aren't quite appropriate um, about how they organize with employees, how they structure compensation, and mine was fairly straightforward and actually extremely um, uh, attractive compared to what everybody else was being brought in because the other problem was as as the economics eroded, they kind of continued to try to bring people in, but in with parameters that didn't really support a lifestyle, and so there was there there began to be a lot of stress within the organization because people were polarized and you know and, and not really being led in a co- cohesive fashion, yeah. not being supported in a co- cohesive fashion, and many of us have experienced that ourselves, and it's a, it's it's an unfortunate um, How many- outgrowth of companies and stress.
0: How many people were there at the peak or when you were there? What was the most in terms of employees?
1: See, when I got there, we were about, when I got there, we were still at about 40 or, or, or nearly 50 people. There was okay. still an office in, in New York and um, you know, some New York and San Francisco. And so there was about 50 people down from about 250. When I left, we probably were down to somewhere between 20 to 30. I can't recall which, but somewhere okay. in there.
0: Fair enough so you were kind of starting to look around and you wanted to stay in the in san francisco area and so You know you have all this experience in semiconductors research software technology Is that that you're just looking at kind of smaller firms that specialize in that vertical or what was the what what were the criteria for
1: so you know, there were, there were a couple things, you know, one, I, I obviously wanted to stay focused on or at least um, stay focused on investment banking if I could, but at least be putting that to work is that was really something that just brought together all of the skills that I, I developed throughout the years. And, and quite frankly, and most people will be shocked to hear this, but I absolutely adore the work as, as, as zany and neurotic and dysfunctional as it can be at times. I absolutely love it. I love the energy of it. I love the technicalities of it. I love the compliance regimen. I, I love every facet of it. It really is. It, it's re- It's really fun. I, I enjoy it. So, um, so I, I, I certainly knew that I wanted to, you know, to, to continue to progress along those lines or make that a big part of the, the portfolio. But I really when wanted you, to make the jump to a big you, firm.
0: When you said investment banking, you you primarily mean. Um, mostly equity offerings and debt offerings like that side of because you had already started doing that right at Merriman. so you were looking for another place where you could continue developing that or continue executing on those types of deals
1: correct and, and but more and more so expanding expanding into the financial advisory role which actually drew more from my earlier experiences of being close advisors to management
0: as a cfo um, interim cfo
1: right mm-hmm. right so i'm really looking to scale everything right i want a firm of bigger scale so that we'll be seen and hired for those you know for, for Financial advisory roles, which I, you know, already was was um, uh, seeing strong demand and and good you know and um, good rapport with clients in that regard, and, and doing some of that work where I could also have more of a formal capital markets desk that could distribute securities and obviously really you know fulfill more of the role in a, in a more well-rounded way. So that that requires a bigger firm.
0: Sure. And so how did you how did you how did you get in touch with the people who ended up bringing you in well, as, a, as an MD?
1: I actually, um, I actually made, um, uh, so I started reaching out through my network and, um, and had a lot of conversations with firms that were just felt like I was having a conversation with the firm I was at. And actually, it was really about that time, maybe a little earlier, Patrick, that I realized that the vast majority of the middle market firms are really just shades of gray of each other. Each one has maybe something a little bit better here, a little bit better there, but overall, they're kind of all the same thing. Mm-hmm. And so um, so really, I, I really wanted to make a shift, and um, um, I was able to find somebody uh, who really believed in me over at Stiefel, uh, a gentleman named Doug Heskey. Mm-hmm. Although Doug was in the asset management side of the business and, and a really warm and wonderful person, um, he saw the potential in me to... Uh, to come over to a firm like Stiefel and use my skills of uh, of cross-selling to significantly enhance the offering at the firm and also help him with his division extract more value from the high-net-worth individuals and the corporate clients that they already catered to as asset managers, but didn't really have a way to bring that business out of them, right? Because of regulatory restrictions and and just lack of expertise. Um, And so he really... Uh, he really um, uh, went above and beyond the call of duty to help me get oriented with the firm and put me through a, um, uh, a series of interviews and interactions, extending all the way back to the corporate offices in New York and in Baltimore. But this is, is this
0: with Stiefel or this is with another firm he knew? Like,
1: no, this was with Stiefel. Okay. He had yep. all of their all of their senior institutional staff, including their head of capital markets, Thomas Mulroy who was also president of the firm and president of the international, an absolutely stellar guy, not there anymore, but stellar guy, yep. and, um, and I was absolutely ecstatic. I mean, these guys had huge offices at one Montgomery Street, right? It's, uh, yeah, they had 25 billion in assets under management. This was the real deal. Mm-hmm. And even though I wasn't going in as an investment banker, it didn't matter because I knew that all I had to do was get in and develop one thing, right? And then, obviously, then I'd have the interaction with the bankers, and they would be able to see my credentials and my experience. And, but tell me, what were they bringing
0: you? What were they bringing you in as, if not an investment banker? What, given your, he was going
1: to bring me. He, he was intending to bring me into the asset management division under right. his in, in his group. Got it. To pair me with, he was. He wanted to pair me with one of his um, his most effective and highest producing brokers, who had a considerable number of corporate clients. And so that was the connection. And if you know Stiefel at all, Stiefel is very focused on trying to cross-sell through the bank to increase performance. They have a bank, right? They are a lending institution mm-hmm. as well as an investment bank. So it really was just a nice, perfect fit. And I was ecstatic about it.
0: So tell me, um, how did it start? How did it evolve?
1: And uh, so, you know, I went through all this interview process and all this, all this wonderful, wonderful stuff. And then uh, the interaction got quiet. And, um, you know, I knew that there was certainly an element of trying to sell this to the higher ups. There really hadn't been a hybrid like that in, in, in that sort of function, but things were changing there. So, so we knew there was some interest. Um, but really what ended up happening is that, unfortunately, the, um, the individual that, um, that they were hoping to pair me with to attack the corporate clientele for them, mm-hmm. um, uh, unfortunately, had been um, doing some things that perhaps he shouldn't have, and um, and he was let go, and wow. that really, you know, that that kind of set things a bit adrift.
0: Right. So they weren't sure what to do with you because they needed him for <laughs> for right. you to be effective.
1: Exactly. <laughs> well, it wasn't, and it wasn't just that; it was actually something of a regulatory nature. So it really impacted the prestige of the group, and unfortunately, um, uh, my sponsor, if you will, and uh, uh, was also was also relieved of his situation.
0: Wow, so this is a pretty dramatic, you're, you're ecstatic thinking you're gonna be joining this great outfit and-
1: I'm waiting for my offer.
0: You're waiting for your yeah. offer, um, halfway out the door at Merriman, if not, you're not, if you're not already at the door. Um, yeah. And I assume you own a home at this point in San Francisco or you're renting and you're thinking to yourself, this is it, I'm gonna be able to stay in SF or you're thinking I'm gonna to move to New York, what was the plan?
1: Well, I just thought, you know, man, this is going to be fantastic. This is, you know, this is the ticket. This is, this is what I've worked for. And this is what I've struggled for. And this is what I put myself through all those years of, of pain and, and pay and, and things like that for. So yeah, I was really looking forward to it. So, and so uh, when it
0: went, it. went quiet, what did you do?
1: Well, you know, I continued my efforts in the background with other, you know, with other people and, um, and, and so there were some other irons in the fire and those continued to progress. And, you know, I, I You know, unfortunately, once a firm starts to really slide down a certain path and slide downward, I like to put it this way, Patrick, and this happens for every business. You know, whenever, whenever a firm, whenever a company has to save itself from some financial pending doom, right, you have to do what? You have to give something up, right? You have to give up a little bit of the ownership. You have to give up a little bit of your soul to make it work. Yeah. So you basically start uh, you know you start step you start walking down the staircase and um in unfortunately in Merriman's case you know they they had continuously stepped down a number of times and done some 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 capital raises and and um it just was continuing down that path. Mm-hmm. Um and so Obviously, we have certain uh, capital um, requirements in, in brokerage and investment investment banking. So I knew that it was unsustainable. So it wasn't like I could just go back forever. I, I, the, a transition was coming for all of us, whether yeah. we liked it or not. So I had to continue my pursuit. Um, and, um, and and so that's really and, and that's when you know I got close to uh, the benchmark company. Mm-hmm. And. and September- um,
0: Tell me about you at so You were there for around three years. Is that right?
1: Yeah, I was there for, I was there for a little over three years and um, 2015 said,
0: 15 to 18 just for the context. Yeah. So yeah. Okay. Yep. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And um, and, and what, what Benchmark had or what represented that time was, yeah, they were another middle market firm, but they were really focused on banking and they just brought in a, a head of banking that had led one of the top middle, uh, middle market banking shops for many years. Uh, as its CEO, she so was more of an administrative guy, not just like a big, you know, big talker. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I was impressed with that. And um, they had a capital markets desk, a dedicated capital markets desk. But more than that, and for people that know investment banking, they know this is valuable. They have some extraordinary analysts mm-hmm. for whatever reasons, and particularly technology analysts. Um, and so so even though um, uh, Steeple had been, you know, kind of uh, uh, my, my hopes there had been dashed because of that 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 issue that had arisen in that that group, um, this looked like a really really um, uh, a positive uh, positive step forward as well because I would at least get those um, components that I felt was lacking from the practice of Merriman and be able to really focus as a, as a managing director of investment banking on that that uh, that expansive banking um, opportunity
0: so okay so tell me a little bit about like your day-to-day there so when you first arrived what was what were the resources given to you how are you expected to build your business you know was it like just start calling on any corporate clients you have or was it were they like hey here are the people who've done offerings with us in the past see if they want to do a secondary see if they want to if they need more debt like what was the was there any sort of guidance or they expect you as an md to just bring in
1: your own business and you're going to cut out of that it was, unfortunately, as is the case with most middle market firms, it was the latter. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was like my first day. At, it's like, at, here's uh, your
0: computer or just here's your desk. Not yeah. even. Oh, my God. At
1: first, I had to bring my own computer. It took them six weeks to get a computer together <laughs> for me. My Lord, it was unbelievable. It's like I, it's like I joined a rickshaw. Yeah. Uh, and, um, so, uh, so it mean, was really all up to us. It was really all up to me. And, and um, What were
0: you giving the analysts? any associates, anything, any support?
1: No, I was given nothing. Okay. I was given nothing. And And so I I knew that going in, but there was some time pressure to get out of Merriman. As I, I, of course. Yeah. But I understand,
0: I I understand why you had to move, but can you tell me a little bit about like knowing that they knew, they know you're at Merriman. Probably everyone knows Merriman's struggling. So did it hurt you in negotiations in terms of, was there any negotiations in terms of like, you're coming in at an MD level, right? And you say, my guess is, Pay there is largely there'll be some sort of base, but it's pretty small, and then there's a huge upside component if you're bringing in a lot of business or doing in a lot of offerings. Is that accurate?
1: Yeah, that is. Uh, you know, so it's um, you know, a firm you like mind, Benchmark. You
0: mind like, yeah, give me some ranges so that the listeners can understand what it means to kind of be at a senior position at one of these middle market firms.
1: So unfortunately, there is a layer of the middle market of which Benchmark is part of mm-hmm. that. Um, uh, that really has no set compensation, and the so various, zero. vast majority a of it zero. is a variable comp. Yeah. And um, and and the vast majority of the firms in that category are are like that, or quickly trying to move towards that.
0: And so, tell me a little bit about what that rev, sh- what that upside can potentially look like in a good year, or how how somebody would think about going to negotiate if they're going to go try to do this and be kind of eat what they kill.
1: So. Sure. Your, your negotiation center around um, things like uh, your office situation, your benefits mm-hmm. and healthcare costs. And, um, and of course the percentage of uh, uh, the percentage of the fees the f- that you're due to receive on, uh, on your transaction. Right. So, so like it, it, in
0: terms of ranges, are we talking like, uh, let's say you bring in a million dollars in fees for the firm. Are we talking for in, in one year? Are you, are we saying that they'd pay you like 30% of that plus your healthcare plus your, you know, give you your office. Or are we saying like, is it more like 60, 70% they pay you? And so they're,
1: they're they, margins are... they present to you 50% essentially. That 50. is your
0: proximate okay. range. So around yeah. 50% of the fees you're bringing in are yours there, but they're giving you a platform, the, the name, the the analyst, right. like the research right. analyst to give you that.
1: And because I was coming from a salaried or a salary plus bonus role at, uh, at Merriman, and um, you know we had um, uh, we had good benefits there as well. Um, uh, you know I was really able to focus the negotiations on making sure that those uh, those you know more intangible items, or I'd say the uh, you know, were the, taken the, care the, of the peripheral items were were you know negotiated in a very very attractive fashion. Um, but um, uh, but yeah, it was it was a uh, it, it was a real big challenge.
0: And so and did um, you just were you nervous about it going to pure pure? Um? you know, pure commission versus salary hey. bonus, or did you feel confident enough that you had, you had been doing this long enough that you knew, Hey, I'm going to close enough to, to pay to do well.
1: See, if I'm talking to you, it's one answer. If I'm talking to my wife, it's a totally different. Answer. <laughs>
0: so tell me both. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, you know, I, I am um, a, a little of both. Uh, obviously it was not what I wanted. It was not optimal. Um, mm-hmm. and it's not what I was looking for. And I knew that it was going to affect, um, my approach to the market, it was going to affect what types of clients, um, I, I, I approached and, um, you know, workflow. why,
0: why do you say that?
1: Um, you don't have time to dig in and focus on the strongest opportunities or ones that you really believe in. So you really do have to focus more on things that you think are immediately actionable, basically clients that you see some sort of stress, Got right? It. And that gives you white faith as a small provider, but it also, you also know that that management is motivated um, to get something done if you can bring value. And, um, and so, but those are typically not durable businesses and they're not necessarily great for the long term, but, you know. But when um, you're on commission,
0: when you're on commission, you need to get some, you need to get the offerings and bring in fees.
1: Exactly. And, and no so, matter what, you know, no matter what, investment banking, and the reason it is not, not optimal and not appropriate to compensate anyone like this is because of that. You end up putting people in a position where they have to go after business, which is non durable and not necessarily optimal and not necessarily of any interest to in the vast majority of investors. And um, and so that doesn't help you build your business. Um, but also, it, it, it um, you know, it, 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 um, it means you really can't, you haven't aligned compensation with objectives. Right. And that's objectives with the individual or the, or the firm. It's so tell me kind of helter skelter.
0: And when you were you're arranging these offerings, tell me what exact it's for the listener. Tell me exactly what that even means. So like, just give me an example. So like, let's say we have a private debt offering. So let's say you're, you're, can you give me an example of, of one you did when you were there, where you found this company or how you even found it, how you screened for these companies, how you even got in touch with them, or is it all just your Rolodex? You're just immediately start calling people, you know,
1: Mm, that's a little harder. I mean, I, I really, I really have to say I'm extremely prolific and <laughs> I'm, I'm really quite good at it. Um, sorry. So,
0: you're really quite okay. good at, sorry. You're really quite good at what?
1: I'm really quite good at prospecting and development. Um, and so,
0: so you don't want to share your, your secret sauce or you, you're saying that what's, what's hard about it, I guess.
1: I, I mean, process, what, what are you
0: using? What are the tools you're using? Let's start there.
1: So I guess, you know, a lot of this still goes back to, you know, uh, everything that I had done for for decades before was really, you know, yes, I would do screening, right? I would tap my network um, aggressively and still do to this day and obviously reach out to my uh, reach out to everybody that I knew. And I, I use email very effectively. And I use the phone very effectively to call my contacts and, and let them know what, what we're doing just to, you know, to get referral business and to find opportunity. But I do do, I, I do absolutely do a screening in my role. And I'll screen through, you know, S&P, CapIQ, FactSet, what have you, mm-hmm. uh, for companies that are in the space that I want to focus on, and um, that seem to have some sort of, of financial stress where I think I can have where I think I can uh, you know uncover a solution or help them make some incremental gains.
0: And then how are you even um, making it through? How are you even getting to, past the gatekeepers to talk oh, to people Oh, that's
1: easy. <laughs> that's easy when you're me.
0: <laughs> How's that so, why? Why is it easy uh, if it's you? And what, what well, makes what makes you able to do that?
1: Um, you know, I was a CEO for many years. And, you know, even though the size of the firm wasn't such, such that people would think that I'm, you know, Jamie Dinan or anything like that, the truth is it really is a differentiated viewpoint. And I, I really got accustomed to working with CEOs and CFOs in a very fluid fashion. They don't scare me, um, which bankers, I, I'll tell you, are terrified of their clients. It's hilarious. Um, <laughs> it's really funny. I mean, they're, they're terrified. Um, I am not. There is always another client around the next door. Clients come, clients go. I don't care. I usually have four or five transactions going at any given time, whereas your average banker does maybe one or two a year. Mm If they're lucky, and they sit around and wait for it. I'm very proactive. I attack my market, and because of the passion that I have for the business, that's what drives me. So I want to go out there every day and find a new solution or a new opportunity. But how do how do you get
0: around? But like for the people that are cold how do you so, get around this like so yeah i get I'm, it you have a pretty good i'm meeting.
1: very respectful of them and their time okay. it's that okay. simple so yeah. i'll do something like um you know I'm, I'm very adept at getting contact information and i'll just reach out to you now the other thing is i know who i work for most bankers and going up to all the bulge bracket most bankers don't know who they work for everybody thinks they work for the ceo you do not work for the ceo that's the ego that's the ego the investment banker and all investment bankers, the relationship is maintained and managed and all output function is controlled by the CFO. And I was what? A CFO for hire. Mm -hmm. So my, so that I've always leveraged that. And that has become very, very important to me is that common experience of going through the PCAOB audit, for example, of answering open items, of drafting my management discussions and analysis that's where we connect, Got you know, it. we've done the same thing. And, and so when you're, really when you're sending
0: answer. a lot of these are just cold emails, you're blasting out 50 yeah. cold emails a day, LinkedIn messages, what have you, anything you can to just to try and, try
1: yeah, and, I actually try, I try to be a little bit more, um, uh, thoughtful. uh narrow than that. <laughs> yeah. So I, I okay. don't use LinkedIn or anything like that. Yeah. Um, I, I have obviously just to get a basic connection from time to time, but no, I, I try to send a personal email. Mm -hmm. it's usually something very simple, you know, may I have a couple minutes to learn about your business? And that's truthfully what I'm after. Mm -hmm. The first thing I got to do is I've got to find out what you need and who you are. And I've got to, you know, have a conversation. Mm -hmm. And with the CFOs um, and once they realize that I haven't that operational background and some common experience, they're usually very accepting of that and they're usually very welcoming. And if you kind of give them the floor and, um, you know, and just ask for a basic, Hey, you know, can you tell me about your business? Um, they're usually very open to it. Mm. And, um, so that's, that's really how I started, but I just usually have kind of a knack for it. And I, I can respect their workflow. I know what's on their mind generally, and it's very easy for me to talk to them because I've been through some of the same rigors.
0: Fair. Okay. So, um, yeah, tell me what happened. So what's next? Well, so you're there. It sounds like you did really well. Um, yeah, a- it was uh,
1: it, it was it was very challenging um, at first, um, but um, that's where that's where my focus on semiconductors and technology hardware and IT hardware really started to emerge. Um, we had two of the best analysts in the industry for these two spaces. One, the gentleman named, um, Gary Mobley. Uh, Gary Mobley is known for specific um, uh, coverage in uh, in semiconductor space, which is very rare. He's now at Wells Fargo as one of their senior analysts, and mm-hmm. our other our other analyst, uh, Mark Miller, had a Nobel Prize in physics for his work um, uh, at NASA in the 80s, um, and uh, some some very highly respected individuals. And it just so happened that my transactional success started to to emerge in their you know in their universe. And both of these guys covered some of the, the, the more prestigious and prominent companies in that space. Mm-hmm. So I saw that as that my opportunity, for example, Patrick, as to back to Stiefel, right? I knew that the future lied in the bigger companies. And I knew that, you know, following my analysts religiously and, and using that open door to develop those relationships with the larger companies in the billion-dollar and more market cap category was, was where the durable future lied. Mm-hmm. And so really that's where I focus. So although it was once again, very, very difficult to get into business, um, and very rocky, uh, for the first say year and a half, um, you know, once I was able to develop some of those transactions and close some transactions, and, um, once I'd made enough and spent enough time with these executives, then it started to, then, then it really started to emerge and unfold from there.
0: That's great. And so tell me kind of what you've been up to in the last few years.
1: Well, last year. So, so after I left, I was still really focused on 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 making the same sort of shift back to a very large firm, mm-hmm. um, and and various opportunities developed. It's a very very long road, and um, what's very interesting and unique about kind of the managing director of investment banking role at a large firm is that they come for you. You can't go after the job. Um, you know, they eventually you know reach out to uh, uh, to executives that are in their coverage universes, and that's how the referrals start. So. You kind of have to just keep putting your feelers out there. You've got to you got to maintain um, your, uh, your work with your clients and maintain your visibility with them. And um, you know, ultimately, eventually somebody's looking and they you know they, they come and ask for uh, for an interview or for an introduction.
0: Great. And so and so
1: uh, and so that happened with um you know another another middle market firm that was looking and lost their long time San Francisco-based um, uh, managing director. And, um, you know, unfortunately, it was once again a firm that I, I, I really had, had excluded from my list because they didn't have physical footprint in San Francisco, which I believe is a strong success factor. If you're going to be competitive in your market. You have to be present in your market. Mm. And um, uh, so I saw some challenges ahead, but um, I was really anxious to get back in the workforce. And um, and that's where I, uh, you know, I, I decided to, uh, to go back and, and help uh, Craig Hallam. Um, capital group out and um, uh, they also had some really excellent analysts and their coverage really overlaid very beautifully with uh, with my coverage universe so uh, so I spent some time working with them and I think doubled their coverage in this space uh, within about seven in about seven weeks but um, it was um, uh, like I mentioned earlier it was a lot of the same.
0: So you're now doing your own thing
1: and so that's correct <laughs> and so I realized listen you know it, it, it's time. Just, um, <laughs>
0: it's time you're going. You're CEO again.
1: Exactly, and and yeah. you know I really wanted to have that focus emerge, and um, or I really wanted to, to to remain focused on that. And I saw all of the opportunities to create something that delivered what the clients were actually demanding. Because during this evolution, Patrick, I really started to see that the clients across the board were really we really gravitating towards that CFO and operational background. They saw it as being, you know, extremely valuable in the overall strategic um, uh, uh, development and the sort of the st- uh, strategy calls and, and strategic work that we were doing. And mm-hmm. I was starting to get calls from clients who were, and this started at the end of benchmark, who were asking to hire me as con- confidential financial advisors to oversee the work of other large firms. So ironic. You know, Credit Suisse won't. Credit Suisse doesn't want to talk to me. However, what they don't know is I've been supervising their offerings, and the questions that some management teams have been asking of their bankers were written by this guy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, very interesting, huh? Yeah. So um, you know, it, it's um, uh, and and you know, I'll, I'll never rem- I'll never forget that that particular engagement. It was a uh, it was a Sunday morning, seven thirty. I get a call from a CFO who I've been courting for years. Um, long time Cowan client um, and uh, and everybody else covered by everybody on the street. And uh, yeah I pick up the phone, of course, because that's also my background. I'm never off. I'm, you know, I still have that mentality. I'm never off. So and if he's calling me at 730 on a Sunday, there's something up. Yeah. So I pick up the phone. He says, look, we've got this thing. Um, we, you know, we, we desperately need to recapitalize um, uh, some of our credit situation. We're getting a lot of offers from different different places. You've always, you've always struck me. And he said this, I'll never forget. He said, you've always struck me as, uh, as someone who would tell me the truth. <laughs> and, uh, I said, absolutely. And he said, so what I'd like to do is I'd like to bring you in as our you know, confidential advisor working with me and the board to analyze and assess all of these different options and make you know, uh, clear recommendations to us. And I said, absolutely, no problem. Let me get an engagement agreement together. He said, sure, send it over to me. And as soon as I did, he called me right back and he said, said, look, man, this is great. He said, this is great, but, um, uh, you know, I don't know that I was really clear. I was really hoping to just hire you. Is there any way I can hire you and not benchmark? And that's when I went, it's time. (laughs) And I said, of course, I said, no. And of course, that flowed through the firm as it's supposed to, as it's supposed to. It was very successful. Mm -hmm. That firm at that time, that company at the time was trading at 98 cents. The work that we did together then um, unlocked significant value. The company today, this is only a year and a half later, trades at $37 and nearly $4 billion in market cap. Wow. Um, so, you know, very successful. That was a very successful engagement um, mm-hmm. and, um, and really represented what I saw as kind of a coming back together of, okay, you know, my clients, my clients really do respect me that, in that role and rely on me in that role. And I think I am prepared to lead the way again Great. or try to it's <laughs> exciting
0: it's exciting so you know you're you've set up shop it's called semi cap equity partners is the name of your firm
1: correct right? correct correct
0: um, so I'm sure a lot of the listeners if they're want to be in San Francisco or they want uh maybe an internship maybe at some point or you'll need some analysts at some point uh you know where to look
1: <laughs> I, I would absolutely welcome it you know another part of this patrick is that you know i I'm really frustrated by or I was very frustrated by the volatility and the variability of these firms because of what, was, what is essentially poor management. I'm sorry if you don't have a focus, if you don't lead your members, if it's your, if you're the head of banking or, or maybe the founder, and it's your initials on every single banking deal that's that's currently active in the space. You're not providing leadership. There is no proper leadership. There is no proper. Um, financial structure to these organizations. Compensation is an absolute disaster. Mm. And um, these are very simple things to correct. So a very big portion of what Semicap Equity Partners is is all about is trying to to create a business and build a business that is specifically catered to the needs and the demand of the clients, while then also organizing it in the most Practical, logical, efficient, and appropriate, uh, and professionally appropriate ways. And Mm -hmm. that means proper compensation for people. That means a focus, a business that's known for something, which is why I chose the, admittedly, somewhat kooky name. (laughs) I don't want healthcare. Don't bring me healthcare.
0: Semi-cap, yep, semi-cap. You're very clear what you you guys are specializing in. Exactly. Yeah.
1: So we can be known for something. We can deliver real value to clients and real mind-share value. Mm-hmm. Right. They know we know something. This is all we do. It's all we focus on. Yeah. You know, I, I don't care about microfiltration bubbles anymore. That's that's enough, <laughs> right? Um, so, so that that's that's a really key thing, and and that is where margin comes from. And ultimately, yes, although we're starting from, um, although we're starting with a you know with a small team and and, and, a, uh, and a small group, we have very large aspirations, and the goal and the objective is to have all of those key um, institutional functions. Um, Present, including research and trading, um, of course, because and again, where a lot of these firms just simply don't put it together is that they're all part of the same margin pool, right? We all we we and 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 by not having focus and by being diffuse, that's why they always suffer financially. So, what's your what's your focus
0: first? What's your focus first in terms of what are you setting up? What's kind of what's kind of the initial thing? Is it more just you know you're going to be more kind of like a one-off, uh, kind of consultants, kind of the CFO role? Or do you see yourself kind of quickly trying to build up and scale your team?
1: Um, we're, we're on the ladder. We're, we're very aggressively trying to scale the team. We already have engagements both on both on the financial advisory, you know, for, for M&A style work, as well as on the um, uh, as well as on the capital markets and distribution side. We're mm-hmm. currently embroiled in a couple of distributions. So, you know, the sooner that I can um, uh, that I can um, uh, grow the business and grow the, uh, the talent pool, um, the more opportunity that we can process and the quicker we can process it. You know, and that's the other fundamental piece here in services. And, and this is something that's missed. And maybe I said it earlier. I'm not sure. In services people are your product. People are your inventory. Most people don't understand that. And just yeah. like if I manufacture a product and have to start my supply chain and put my money into, you know, building the product in the inventory before I can go to, to Amazon or to, to Neiman Marcus and sell it, right? It's the same thing with people. In services, that's why the credentials matter. That's why your experience matters. And so, you know, I'm here to bring together the experiences and the credentials that are relevant to my clients. Um, Our first VP has both a CPA and a CFA because accountancy is everything that we do. It's the core underpinning of the public company CFO's world, Mm -hmm. right? So if I have that on staff, I can give better counsel to them. I can give better product. Um, So I'm very, very committed to people. I'm very, very committed to, 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 um, uh, to, to clients in that way and I really do recognize that it's the people that we're selling, it's their abilities and skill. So the more great people I can have compensated properly in a, in, a function, in a functional cohesive package where everybody's working on the same thing, my traders are trading the right names, my analysts are analyzing the right names, and my bankers have the relationships with all the same names, then we are providing a cohesive package and a comprehensive package and thereby hopefully uh, (laughs) seeing the results in, in, in the margin, um, the margin profile of the firm being significantly greater than most. And so that's, that's really what we're building. And all around that core focus on Semi's IT and IT hardware. It's
0: exciting. It's exciting. I think uh, I'll definitely be be watching and seeing, seeing what happens.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, actually with your help, actually, you know, this is, this is, being, uh, being associated with, with, um, with Wall Street Oasis is brilliant, right? I, I love what you've built. You've built one of the largest communities. I think it, it, it provides education. It provides um, access. And so those are things that I gravitate towards and, and I feel are part of our makeup as well. So actually, I'm elated to be here. I thank you for putting me on the platform. And I hope that I can do some great work for, uh, for you and for, uh, uh, for your candidates and for your, um, for your community members as well.
0: Great. Thanks so much, Douglas. I appreciate you sharing all your stories and uh, with the community and um, let's stay in touch.
1: My pleasure, Patrick. Thank you very much. And I look forward to speaking with you again soon. Thanks. And
0: thanks to you, my listeners at Wall Street Oasis. If you have any suggestions whatsoever, please don't hesitate to send them my way, patrick at wallstreetoasis.com. And until next time.